Thank you so much, Sorry. Can everybody hear me? Yeah? yeah? Never used this before? Okay. I want to thank uh, Sorry and Bob, the Sugarmans, and Judy Rudolph, and the entire Rudolph family for having me here, as well as Trisha. I uh, had a lot of interaction with Trisha when I used to work on the West Side, um, and uh, I worked at the Jewish Center where Trisha was located. It's nice to be here in their new digs and to see how, how beautiful it is. Our topic for today is fellow passengers, tshuva as a community. There is a uh, old joke about a who visits Israel, touring. And he's touring around and he's thirsty. So he pulls over, he knocks on some Israeli's door and he says to him, would you mind if I have a drink of water? So he says, sure. They're sitting down drinking water and the Texan says to the Israeli, so what do you do? The Israeli said, I'm a farmer. I raise a couple of chickens, some roosters. So the Texan said, well, that's really interesting that we have this in common. Back in Texas, I'm a rancher. I, I have this ranch. So the Texan said, tell me, he says to the Israeli, uh, how big is your farm? So the Israeli said, oh, I have around 50 meters in front, around 100 meters out back. How big is your ranch, he says to the Texan. So the Texan says, well, let me put it this way. I can get up in the morning... And I can eat breakfast and get into my car and I can drive and drive and reach the end of my rent until sunset. So the Israeli nods understandingly and says, oh, I understand. I used to have a car like that too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, did he? It's Basharat then. It's a good time to mention that this is, uh, I'm honored to be asked to speak for the Stanley Rudolph Memorial Lecture specifically. Now, travel. Travel tells us a great deal about the society in which we live. And no one has commented on this with more insight than Stephen L. Carter, uh, one of my favorite authors. Those who know me know that I love him. He is a professor of law at Yale University. And he's written many, many, many interesting books, The Culture of Disbelief, uh, is his most famous one. But this is from a book that had a big impact on me, which is called Civility. And uh, he begins his book by describing how travel worked in the United States in the 19th century. And how in those days, most people traveled by train. Whether it was first, second, or third class, everybody traveled together. He writes as follows. Travel is our first source. Travel in those days was necessarily in groups. Nobody but the very rich to travel alone. One bought a ticket and sat down in a train full of strangers. Doubtless the excited passengers jostled each other for space, but although the Europeans were already looking down on American manners, it was not yet the nation's fashion to be rude. They purchased guides to proper behavior, best-selling guides, I should add, like Politeness on Railroads by Isaac Peebles, something I'm sure you're all familiar with, and tried to follow with sensible rules. Whispering, loud talking, immoderate laughing and singing should not be indulged by any passenger, was one. Passengers should not gaze at one another in an embarrassing way, ran another. Conductors were soon cracking down on passengers who indulged personal preferences at the expense of other passengers. I'm sure this all reminds you of the subway here in New York City. Well, of course, he writes, to travel so far together, packed shoulder to shoulder like chess pieces in their little box, everybody had to behave on the, or the ride would become intolerable. But nowadays, he concluded, somewhat sadly, we have automobiles, and we travel both long and short distances surrounded by metal and glass in the illusion that we are traveling alone. 
If railroad passengers a century ago knew the journey would be impossible unless they considered the comfort of others more important than their own, our spreading illusion has taken us in the other direction. We care less and less about our fellow citizens because we no longer see them as fellow passengers. On the railroad trains, all the passengers together were a community called by a shared moral understanding to sacrifice for each other. But now, uh, but if, as we now seem to think, there are no other passengers, there is no community. And if there is no community, we can do what we like, not just on the roads, but everywhere. The illusion that we travel life alone is ruining us all. And I think this is an apt metaphor for the way tshuva is all too often performed. All too often, we focus on our own actions as an individual. But the truth is that for a Jew to truly do tshuva, he or she must realize that every Jew is a fellow passenger of his or her co-religionist. And that one's own moral status before God affects the moral status of all Jews and the Jewish people as a single entity before God. We sacrifice because we need each other. In order to make this argument to you tonight, I'd like to begin with a few interesting halachos that relate to the laws of Erev Yom Kippur, and then use that as a springboard to discuss the larger question of tshuva as a community. In source 2, the Shulchan Aruch, in his Hilchos Yom Kippur, in his laws of Yom Kippur, mentions one of the most famous halachos, the obligation to ask mechila from our fellow human being on It's as follows. Regarding sins committed against one's fellow man, Yom Kippur does not atone until he appeases him. Even if he only insulted him verbally, he must make him feel better. What if he refuses to be appeased, he refuses to be mocha, he refuses to forgive? Then, you should come back a second or third time. You should bring three people with you. In other words, a bezdin, a court, in order to ask Mechila. And if after three times in front of this bezdin, the person who you wronged still refuses to be Mochel, your obligations are at an end. That's all you have to do. And this is a very interesting law with sources in the Gemara and it's quoted by the Rambam, by Maimonides, and as we find it... And it's raised a number of questions by the commentators. I'll mention two which I'd like to focus on. First, why is there a special obligation to ask Mechila from our fellow human beings on Erev Yom Kippur in particular? If we've wronged shouldn't we ask them for Mechila right away? Why would we wait till Erev Yom Kippur to ask them? And yet this law appears in the Shulchan Aruch and in the Rambam only in the context of tshuva for Yom HaKippur specifically. Why do we need to wait? Secondly, why does one need a Bezdin in order to ask Mechila? This is something discussed less by the commentators. But it is, I think, an important question. Is asking Mechila a legal proceeding? Why does one need a court in order to affect this process of asking for forgiveness. So let's begin by addressing the first question. 
Why Erev Yom Kippur specifically? Why have the Jewish people developed this minhag, this tradition, of singling out the day before Yom Kippur to ask forgiveness for our sins against our fellow man? One suggestion that is found is based on the following story. The very, very famous story which figures in a lot of discussions of Jewish ethics about how when the Chafetz Chaim finished his compendium on the laws of Lashon Hara, on the evils of God, to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, asking him for a haskama, asking him for a uh, note of approval uh, that uh, you know how those things usually work. Uh, let's say I write a sefer, so the haskama would say, I would get some gadol to write a haskama for me, which would say something like, um, I don't really know Mayor Soloveitchik, but I've seen his picture and he looks reasonably Jewish. Something like that. <laughs> um, so that's how haskamas usually work. That's not how Rabbi Yisrael Salanter uh, treated haskamas. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter felt that if he was going to give a haskama on the sefer, he had to read the entire thing from beginning to end and to see if he with every single thing. And the Chofetz Chaim comes back the next day and Rabbi Yisrael Salanter tells him, you're safer and I agree with every single halacha except one. The Chofetz Chaim wrote in his Laws of Lashon Hara that if one spoke gossip about somebody, he has to go to that person, tell him, I said these terrible things about you and I need you to be mochome. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter felt this was just increasing the damage. You're going to walk over to somebody and say, listen, spread false rumors about the entire community that you have a problem. I'd really like Mechila on this. Then he'll you and you'll say, oh, thanks, I feel much better. And then you'll go away. Yes, you've wronged him, Rabbi Shroh Salanter said, but the very act of asking Mechila will produce more damage than the initial wrong. So some have applied this concept, this argument, to the, to the, to, to the issue of asking Mechila in general. Suppose you come over to somebody and you ask him Mechila you're going to create big problems because first of all you're going to have to either you're going to inform somebody that you've done something terrible to him or you're going to tell that per- you're not going to tell that person what you did let's say you're wrong in the middle of the year if, I, if we consider ourselves obligated at any point during the year to ask Mechila from a person I would walk over to that person and say listen I need to ask Mechila I did something terrible I don't really want to talk about it but I did something terrible to you please be mochum Again, you'll say, thanks, I feel so much better, and go on your way. So some suggest that precisely in order to obviate this problem, the people have set up one general which is from everybody. We go around and we ask Mechila. This is the suggestion of Rav Sternbuch in his famous his Svarim on the Yaman Tovim. He writes as follows in Source 3. <coughs> he says, based on this, we can answer our question why there's a special obligation to ask Mechila on Erev Yom Kippur. Because throughout the year, throughout the year, when a person is aware of something that you did wrong, you ask him suddenly for forgiveness, you'll realize for the first time that somebody did this terrible thing to you, you'll feel terrible. Avo Be'erev Yom Kippur, that's general for this day. That's the ritual of the day. Everybody has mechila and we all give blanket mechila to each other. Avo Be'erev Yom Kippur, kol echad mevakesh mechila al sofik nidnud pagam. On any possible 
insult, we ask Mechila. And then and in such a case, somebody asked so this is a way of allowing everyone to get forgiveness for the sins which they've done without running into any That's what Rav suggests. It makes the obligation a lot less serious. that forgiveness is an essential part of the tshuva process. Really, a for what we did wrong. We have to reconcile ourselves with them, says the halacha. We have to appease them. You can't just run around and do a blanket mechila. It sounds like from the text itself that it's a much more serious issue than Rav Sturmbuch is making it out. Secondly, and this, I think, is critical. Secondly, when you look at the text itself, it appears, and when, when you see the way that the, uh, the halacha that one is obligated to Kippur is described, it's clear that this is an obligation which is added above and beyond the general requirements of Mechila. It's not that the law that one asks for forgiveness from one's fellow man in Erev Yom Kippur was set up in order to obviate the need for asking Mechila throughout the year. True. In fact, one is obligated to ask forgiveness and to reconcile with one's fellow man on Erev Yom Kippur even when one, on base, when one would not usually need to ask one's fellow man for Mechila. In order to establish what I mean, let's see another source. There's a famous story in the Gemara in Yoma, at the end of Yoma. The English translation, for those who want to see it, is on the top of the next page. I'll read the Hebrew inside on the it Rav, the famous Amora Rav, got into an argument, argument with a Tavcha. What's a Tavcha? A butcher. Okay? Butchers in the rabbinic stories are always causing trouble for the rabbis. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll prove that more efficiently later. Are there any butchers in the audience? Uh, no? Okay. As we'll see. Then we'll have to ask Mechila I'll call you on Erev Yom Kippur. It's on my calendar. Okay. So he says as follows. Rav got into a fight with the butcher. Lo but the butcher never came to ask him Mechila. Now it's interesting, the Gemara never says explicitly who is wrong here. The commentators take it for granted that obviously if there's a fight between Rav and some butcher, it's obviously Rav, it's not Rav who's at fault. But that seems to be the implication because Rav is waiting for the butcher to ask him for forgiveness. Bimala Yom Kippure Omar Ihu. But on Erev Yom Kippur, Rav says, I'm going to go appease, reconcile with the butcher. On his way to the butcher shop, his colleague Rav Huna, Omar Omar. So Rav Huna said, Where is the master going? Omar Palanya. I'm going to be Mephayes, I'm going to reconcile myself with so-and-so, meaning the butcher. Omar, so Rav Huna said, Ozil Abba, Abba, which is Rav's name, Ozil Abba lemiktal nafsha. Abba is going to commit murder by going to reconcile himself. What does that mean? Ozil So he came into the butcher shop, the butcher was chopping the head of a cow, presumably because one of the simonim on Rosh Hashanah is to eat from the head. 
Perhaps that's why the Gemara doesn't say he was preparing a cow. He lifted up his head and he saw Rav. So the butcher said to Rav, Abba, Adzil, you, Abba, get out of here, go away. Leslie Milsa Bahadach, which can be translated as, I have nothing in common with you. That's his phrase. And then, while he said he was chopping, and a bone splintered off the head, stuck him in the throat, and he died. In other words, this refusal to reconcile himself with Rav. So let's examine this. This is a very interesting story. Rav had some sort of altercation with this. Poor butcher. Now, it seems, and so the commentator, that it was the butcher's fault. Because Rav was waiting the entire time. Erev Yom Kippur, he's sitting there, he said, I expect the butcher to be along with me from Achille any minute. The butcher didn't come. Fine. So then Rav says, you know what, because it's Erev Yom Kippur, I'm going to go with Fiusele. I'm going to go reconcile myself with him, with the butcher. Now, why is Rav doing this? Why is he going out of his way to reconcile himself with the butcher? Now, some suggest that he wants to be Mizaka the butcher, as we say, to bring merit to the butcher, to give the butcher a chance to ask him to, to allow the butcher to be forgiven for this sin that he's committed against Rav. That seems to be what the story is saying. But if that's the case, why didn't Rav just forgive him? Right? I'm sure many of us are familiar with Tefillah Zaka, the Tefillah we many say on Erev Yom Kippur, before Kol Nidre, in which people, in order to bring Zchuyos for Klal Yisrael, forgive anyone who's done anything against us. So if the whole point of this, of this whole operation was to get the butcher to be forgiven for the sin he's committed against Rav, what did he need to go to see the butcher for in the first place? Forgive the butcher! The butcher, God, as far as concerned, the butcher is good to go. Now that he's forgiven by me, he can, do, he can do tshuva for you, God. Why didn't Rav just say that? Why did he have to go bother the butcher? Why did he do that? And the answer is, seems to be that the obligation to ask forgiveness from your friend on Erev Yom Kippur is not just about getting forgiveness for the sin that's taken place. It's about reconciliation. Mechila is a difficult, often uncomfortable thing to do, especially if there's something specific we have in mind for which to ask forgiveness. Now, this was modeled after movie phone. Is everybody here familiar with movie phone? Right? You, go to, uh, you want to go to a movie, so you order a ticket. You dial 777-FILM. Or people now, but uh, you call movie phone, and the phone says, Hello, and welcome to movie phone. If you know the name of the movie you'd like to see, press 1, you know, <laughs> and so forth. If you...
to the movie you wish to, and so forth. So the idea behind this thing that was flying around the internet was essentially that because um, asking Mechila was such an uncomfortable thing, imagine if we just had some sort of robotic machine to do it for us. The idea being that someone with his phone would ring, you get a call, and an automatic voice says, Hello, this is Mechila phone. You have a Mechila call from... Then there's a pause, and then you'll hear, hear my voice say, such a call, and you assume, right, that he was just too, Mayor Salavetic was just too embarrassed to ask the butcher in the audience specifically for Mechila, so he decided to send him a Mechila phone call, um, and he decided, let's say he actually pressed one, and was Mochil. Now, is this the ideal version of Mechila, how it's supposed to be? Or imagine if, let's say, I'm kind of... I'm a rabbi, I write speeches in Arabic Kippur, so I don't really have time to go around. Take my entire email list, you know, and put it all in one address and say, I'd like everything for everything I've done to them. Send. Done. Have I done exactly what is no. Because even if somebody who gets the Mechila phone call or somebody who gets the email actually is Mochelmi and he forgives me for, say, the debt that I've incurred against him by acting against him, by sinning against him, one cannot actually say that we're genuinely reconciled, that our friendship or camaraderie has been restored. That you can't say. Perhaps up in Shemayim, up in heaven, I'll be judged a little less severely for my Bein Adam Lachero infraction because the other person is willing to forgive me. But reconciliation has not occurred. Rebuilding of the friendship has not occurred. Pius has not occurred. What is pius? Pius is usually translated as appeasement. Post-Neville Chamberlain, that gets a bad... Uh, but reconciliation is a good word. It's not just getting mechila. That's not what it's all about. Because if Rav... If all Rav wanted, we know this because if all Rav wanted was for the butcher to be forgiven, he could have forgiven him. But that's not what Rav wanted. <coughs> Rav wanted a relationship with the butcher restored back to what it was when he was, say, his best customer before whatever altercation they had. That's what Rav was attempting to do. Now, why Rav cared so much interesting question. But what you see here to see the of Yom Kippur is not just to be forgiven by a friend for an infraction. It's about rebuilding relationships. So much so that even if the fault for the fracturing of that relationship lies with the other side, the implication of this Gemara is that the, it is the obligation of every one of us to seek out our fellow man or woman rebuild that friendship even if the fault is on the other side. That's the implication of this Gemara. And I have a story that is 
the exact same point. My grandfather, uh, many, many years ago, I and my cousins, Josh, Asherl Patton, a few others, uh, anyone who serves as a shamish for my late revered grandfather, Avaron Soloveitchik, Zechotalik changed by Chaim uh, had a Dintora uh, with Why it's always the butcher who's butcher. Again, no offense, men or rabbis as a whole case. Uh, this as follows: There was a butcher who had a shila with his ox. So the ox, according to the story I heard, is worth 500 rubles. That is that, and Reb Chaim, of Brisk, uh, my grandfather's grandfather, and Reb Chaim looked at the law and he said, it's treif. It's treif. And the butcher accepted the psaq without a murmur. Then, uh, a couple months later, the butcher had a din Torah with somebody else. With somebody else. Against somebody else. He had a litigation. And it was over a much smaller sum. Let's say it was for 100 rubles. Reb Chaim convened the Bezdin and he, Paskind again, he delivered the judgment against the butcher. And this time the butcher went nuts. And the butcher started shouting at Reb Chaim, Goslin, robber, shota, idiot. Um, a string of insults. Until Reb Chaim, Reb Chaim sat there and took all the insults. Until, until, his temper, he couldn't take it anymore. him. I remember hearing my grandfather shout it this way. It's a seared on my memory. I won't shout that loud. But the way I heard was that Reb Chaim shouted at him and said, Chutzbenik, Ge'areis von mein Heis. When the butcher stormed out, uh, one of the other... Why was the butcher upset for losing this litigation over just a... ...only poskined against him over a much larger sum. So Reb Chaim So he couldn't use the much worse. It wasn't that he lost the hundred rubles. Got hundred rubles. That's what bothers him. That's what bothers him. That's a side point to the story. Then Arab Yom Kippur, Chaim, before going to the shul in which he davened, um, you know what? Guys, to serve as a bezdin. I don't think he said. But, you know, I want you to serve as a... We're going to send the butcher and I'm going to ask him for machila. Some stunned. It wasn't clear why Reb Chaim had to ask the butcher for machila. was the butcher which entitled to call him a chutzpanik and to tell him ge'areis from mein heiz. went to a different shul, the shul where the tradesmen in the daven. And uh, as the story goes, when they arrived, Kol Nidre had already begun. And the had pulled 
their talesim over their head. So they couldn't find, uh, they didn't know where exactly the butcher was. So Reb Chaim, intent on asking the butcher for Mechila, uh, went and peered under every single person's talus until he found And if you're davening Yom Kippur, and all of a sudden the rabbi of the community out of nowhere peeks under your talus to be taken as, as something from God. Um, but nevertheless, uh, he found the butcher and uh, he said, I've come to work this out. And the butcher said, Nain, Goslin, Sheita, and so forth. So Reb Chaim said, Bezdin, I have a Bezdin, Ich Goslin, I'm asking you for Mechila once. No. Again, I'm asking you for Mechila. No. I'm asking you for Mechila a third time. No. Chaim said, okay, that's all I can do. That's all I can do. As they were walking home from Shul, his son said to him, what was the point of this whole this whole exercise, uh, certainly the butcher had, there was nothing wrong with you throwing him out of his house. The guilt was all his. And Reb Chaim said, you're right. But nevertheless, this story with Rav and the butcher, coincidentally, to, even when the fault lies on the other side, to seek forgiveness and reconciliation on Arab obligation to forgiveness is fundamentally different than the, than the obligation to be forgiven throughout the rest of the year. There is something unique about Erev Yom Kippur which requires us to reconcile ourselves with our fellow man. The question is, what is the source of this obligation? Now, if you look in the Rambam, it's very, very interesting. The Rambam a similar uh, distinction as far as Mechila is concerned between the rest of the year and Yom Kippur time. In source 5 you'll see the Rambam has the laws of Chovel Umazek, the laws of damages, torts. And the Rambam is comparing somebody who hurts somebody physically to someone who damages someone financially. And he says as follows, one cannot compare one who damages one's body to one who damages one's money. Someone who damages someone financially, as soon as he repays what he he achieves atonement for this. One who wounds somebody physically, Five things. The five things are Nezakashipusheves and Boshes, payment for damages, for medical bills, for embarrassments, all different things that the laws of torts calls upon someone to pay. You are not atoned and you are not forgiven for that sin. Until you ask forgiveness from the person you wounded. And he forgives. So the Rambam says. When you damage someone financially, you don't even have to ask for forgiveness, which is startling. You don't have to ask for forgiveness at all. If you deliberately ram your car into somebody else's car, as long as he's not, not in the car at the time, to, be, uh, to, be, to atone for this sin, you don't actually have to ask that person for forgiveness. As if you do wound somebody, you have to ask for forgiveness, and he will be mochal you. 
He will forgive you. That's how the Rambam describes it. Now let's see how the Rambam writes it in the laws of Yom Kippur. It says as follows. Ein ha-tshuva v'lo yom ha-kippurim mechaprin ela alaveiro shebein adam lamakom. Tshuva and Yom Kippur only bring forgiveness on sins committed by man against God. Kigon, for example, one who ate a forbidden food or engaged in a forbidden sexual relationship. But a sin between man and his fellow man. One who wounds one's fellow man. Or one who curses one's fellow man. Oh, goes low or steals from him. Which is what? Financial. You are not forgiven. You have to give back what you owe the person. Which is not the same phrase used before. In the laws of damage, he says that if you were even physically, all you need to do is to get He will forgive you. Ramam says something different. You are not forgiven if you steal from somebody or if you hurt somebody until you pay him what you owe and you appease him. Even, and even if you pay back the money you owe, you need to appease him and to ask him for forgiveness. Even if you've only insulted your fellow man with words, you need to lefaiso, to, uh, to appease him and to entreat him again and again and again until he forgives you. So we have two radically different approaches to forgiveness. One, not in discussion of Yom Kippur, in discussion of damages, where the Rambam says, if you in the nose, all you need to do is to ask him for mechila and financial damages forgiveness at all. And in discussion of Yom Kippur, the Rambam has a fundamentally different description where he goes on and on about how much you have to do in order to ask your friend for forgiveness. Even for what? For financial damage. Because the Rambam says even if you steal from your friend without touching him, without hurting him, nevertheless, you don't have atonement for Yom Kippur. You don't have atonement for Yom Kippur, until you ask that person for forgiveness and you you appease this person. That's what you need to do. So again, you see, the obligation of asking for forgiveness around Yom Kippur time from one's fellow man is fundamentally different than the obligation to ask forgiveness throughout the whole rest of the year. The question is, why is this so? Why is, now that we've established that there is this special obligation, why do we need to reestablish this relationship? And even if the obligation is our fault, why is the obligation on before Yom Kippur to go above and beyond asking for forgiveness and to actually appease our fellow man and to rebuild the relationship that once existed? That's the question that has to be answered. So, in the writings of Rav Soloveitchik, the notes taken on his shiurim, we, found, we find the following very, very interesting answer. And in order to explain this answer, I'd like to see another passage from Stephen Carter first. So if you turn the page to source 9, 
Professor Carter provides us with the story of somebody who does not believe in the concept of selfishness. Interesting story. It was written before September 11th. It's even more interesting now. It writes as follows. You may remember the story. In July 1995, a man raced past the security gates in Houston without bothering with such formalities as walking through the metal detector or having his carry-on luggage screened. The guards, taken by surprise, and perhaps not as well trained as they should have been, were unable to stop the man, let us call him Selfish Passenger, who swiftly disappeared into the ground. Probably Selfish Passenger was simply being selfish. Kishmo Kenu, as we say. But the airport authorities, rather than risk the chance that the man was armed, decided to evacuate both Continental Airline terminals, requiring every individual in the two buildings, some 7,000 people, to leave and then to be screened again before re-entry. Why did he do it? Said a spokesman for the Houston police, we're guessing he was late for a flight. Indeed, shut down, writes Carter. While everyone was screened, it is likely the selfish passenger made his plane. One made, to, one made to wait put it this way. I'm glad they're making sure everyone is safe, but it's too bad all of us had to suffer like this just because of one person. What was uncivil was that selfish passenger acted like a selfish passenger, thinking only of his own need to be on time, uninterested in any harm he might do to others. With this in mind, I'd like to approach the obligation to reconcile with our fellow man on Erev Yom Kippur. Rav Soloveitchik has noted again and again that Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, we seek and we achieve forgiveness not only as an individual, but as a member of Klal Yisrael. Melech mochel v'soleach l'avonos enu v'lavonos amo beis Yisrael. We say in Yom Kippur, God, we say in the liturgy, not only forgives the individuals of Klal Yisrael l'avonos enu our sins, but God forgives us as a member of Klal Yisrael. Moreover, it is only as out of love for Klal Yisrael as a whole that a special forgiveness is granted to us. In order to achieve the special forgiveness granted to us on Yom Kippur, we have to approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu not only as an individual, but as a member of Klal Yisrael itself. We have to approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu as one united tzibur. That's what we need to do. So Rav Soloveitchik says as follows. This is source 8. He says, I understand that throughout the year, if you hurt somebody, all you need to do is ask you for forgiveness. Because there, the only obligation is to worry about yourself and your own standing before God. You've hurt somebody, God has a demerit for you, you need to be forgiven by your fellow man in order to remove Kipper, In order for every individual to achieve forgiveness, we have to come before Kaddish Baruch as one united community. And if we don't come before Baruch Hu as one united community, the tshuva and the kapara and the forgiveness of every one of us is affected and is at risk. And so, if we have, if there is a fracture in a particular Ben Adam Lachavero relationship, that relationship has to be rebuilt. That person who was hurt has to be appeased. And it doesn't matter whose fault it was. 
Because every fracture, in a, every fracture between two Jews affects the unity of Kalal Yisrael, which hurts Kalal Yisrael as a whole. Statement from the Bali Musar on Rabbi Akiva's uh, oft quoted um, uh, statement that. Ma mikva metaris atzmeim afa kadosh baruch hu metaris Yisrael. Rabbi Akiva said, "Ashreichem Yisrael lifnei miatem metaharen." Rabbi Akiva said as follows: Fortunate are you, Israel, before whom are you purified? Before you are purified before your Father in heaven. Ma mikva metaris atzmeim Yisrael. Just as a mikva purifies uh, a un- impure person. So God purifies Israel. Klal Yisrael, repenting on Yom Kippur, is akin to a person going to a mikveh to achieve purity. Now how does one achieve purity by going into a mikveh? The rule is that there cannot be what is known as any chatzitza, any division, any dividing between you and the water. If you're wearing a band-aid or you're wearing something else, so that the water can't get to your skin, that affects your tevila, that affects your general... Tahara. That affects your purity as a whole. In a similar sense, any fractured relationship between, between Kal Yisrael, any chatzitza, any division between Jews, affects the immersion of Kal Yisrael as a single person, affects the purification by God that takes place on Yom Kippur. The Rav says as follows, source 8. Vasher Yira Lomar Bezeh this source attributed originally to Rabbi ben Azariah that one has a specific obligation to ask forgiveness from one's fellow man on Yom Kippur. This halacha is different from the general rule that anyone who hurts his fellow man has to ask for mechila. There is an obligation to ask for forgiveness throughout, and there is an obligation to ask for forgiveness before Yom Kippur. Because the rule that one has to ask forgiveness before Yom Kippur is a specific rule for Yom Kippur. That Yom Kippur will not bring forgiveness until you actually appease your fellow man. And this is in addition to rule throughout the year that one has to ask for forgiveness for one's friend. Before Yom Kippur, it's not enough just to ask for forgiveness. The entire relationship has to be rebuilt. The entire relationship has to be rebuilt. Continuing on the top in the Hebrew, he says as follows in the second paragraph. We are given by HaKadosh Baruch Hu Members of the Klal Yisrael who Hakadosh Baruch Hu loves, ve'ena yochid miskaper ela derech hatzibur, and an individual only achieves forgiveness by becoming part of the tzibur. Sharei soyer hamishtaleach korban tzibur, the soyer hamishtaleach, the the uh, the the scapegoat through which Klal Yisrael achieved its atonement was a korban, a sacrifice brought by the entire community. Ve'imkain bechtei l'tzarif u'la'achid es hatzibur yachad. In order to join the community together, 
it's important that there be no divisions between the Tzibor. Because in order to achieve forgiveness as a community, we have to approach HaKadosh Baruch Hu on Yom Kippur as one united community. That's why we need to achieve reconciliation. And that's why on Erev Yom Kippur it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. It's like when your parents, you know, when you go to your parents, they say, yeah, he started it. No, he started it. And the father says, I don't care who started it. I just want you to be quiet. Um, that never happens in my house, obviously, with my kids. So, in a similar sense, on your, when it comes to standing before God throughout the year, then it really doesn't matter who's at fault and who forgives who. But, when we're coming to Yom Kippur, it doesn't matter. Because every single one of us needs to be part of a united seaboard. Rav needed to ask forgiveness and to reconcile and rebuild his relationship with the, with the butcher because both Rav and the butcher need to be part of one united Klal Yisrael on Yom Kippur. Reb Chaim needed to reconcile with the butcher. Sadly, he could not. But Reb Chaim with the butcher because on Arab Yom Kippur he was about to pray to God or Chaim was about to ask for forgiveness for and he asked that he be forgiven not just as Reb Chaim of Brisk as nice as that may be he was going to ask for forgiveness as a member of Baal Yisrael and he couldn't come and ask forgiveness before God as a member of Klal Yisrael before healing any fractures with which he was associated in the general body politic that is Kalal Yisrael. can now understand, I think, this is what I'd like to humbly suggest, why a Bezdin is necessary to ask Mechila. Why do we need to ask for Mechila in front of a Bezdin? Is this a legal proceeding? You're not selling anything. You're not litigating anything. Why is a court needed? The answer is that often in halacha, the bezd in the court represents Klal Yisrael as a whole. And the place where this can be most obviously is the laws of conversion, the laws of gerus, often compared to repentance. The rule is that gerus, conversion to Judaism, a rebirth into the Jewish people, has to take place in front of a bezd. If it doesn't take place in front of a bezd, according to the conversion is invalid. Now, why is a Bezdin needed? Why is a Bezdin needed? If conversion is a spiritual rebirth by a mikvah, is that a legal proceeding? Why does conversion need to take place in front of a Bezdin? It's something we just accept. That's how it's done. But why is conversion in front of a Bezdin? What's, what's legal or jurisprudential about a, about a conversion? And the answer is, as Ravar Lichtstein famously suggested in an essay, Gerus is not only a spiritual rebirth of an individual God. It's not just an individual Gentile becoming, emerging from the mikvah as an individual Jew. It is also communal. It is the entry of one Jew into the community of Klal Yisrael. It's noteworthy that the archetypal convert, Rus, said first and foremost, Amei and only then a lokayach lokai. Becoming a convert means not only establishing a relationship as an individual with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but establishing a relationship with Klal Yisrael as a whole. Rav Lichtstein puts this very nicely, source 10. Quoting Rav Chiyabar Abba, 
requires the presence of three people. The potential gear appears on society's rostrum and presents himself as a candidate for citizenship in the kingdom of priests and the holy nation. In other words, is Geirus a legal proceeding? It is a legal proceeding. Because becoming a Geir is not only establishing a relationship with God, it's a citizenship hearing. For one who wants to become a citizen of Klal Yisrael. A Geir, in Rav Lichstein's memorable phrase, knocks not only on heaven's door, but also on the gates of Knesset Yisrael, on the gates of the Jewish community. And who greets him? Who is Knesset Yisrael? Who, is the, who are the representatives of Knesset Yisrael? The Bezdeh. This is, I think, why Mechila, specifically Mechila on Erev Yom Kippur, ha- takes place, if he refuses initially, in front of a Bezdin. Why? There's a story of selfish passenger which clues us into this. Anyone who wants to be, who refuses to be Mochel, may have very good reasons for doing so. He may be deeply hurt. He or she may feel that the person who hurt them is not specifically Because the presence of the Bezdin tells them that by refusing to repair this relationship, they are putting their community of Israel in danger. The Bezdin itself, representing Kalal Yisrael, says, you do not realize that tshuva can only be performed as one fellow passenger among many in Kalal Yisrael traveling towards tshuva. By placing your needs above everyone else, by caring about your particular grievance, as guilty as the other party might be, you are not a fellow passenger, you are a selfish passenger, caring only about your own grievances and not about the larger good of Klal Yisrael. That's what you're supposed to be thinking of. And by refusing to repair this relationship, the Bezdin in the place of Klal Yisrael tells him, by refusing to repair this relationship, you are damaging the relationship between what seems to be just a relationship between two people, but is itself a fissure in the body politic that affects its very standing before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And by you refusing, you're hurting your tshuva and our tshuva and the tshuva of the entire Jewish people. Because you are creating a chatzitza, a division between two Jews, and thereby a division, a chatzitza between the Jewish people and the Rabbonu Shalom. You are thinking only about yourself and not, only, and not about others. That's the mitzvah of tshuva on Erev Yom Kippur. Repairing the fissures in Klal Yisrael in order that we can approach God as one united community. It is a, it is a process of asking for mechila specifically before Yom Kippur that requires no question of who's guilty and all an issue of whether the relationships are reconciled. I'd like to spend four more minutes discussing what the philosophical foundation, going a little bit deeper into this notion. The Rav asks as follows in Al Hachuva, asking about this process of tshuva as a community. In order to enjoy both types of acquittal, writes the Rav, the source 11, a man is eligible for, that one is eligible for on the Day of Atonement. The individual must fulfill two obligations. For the achievement of individual acquittal, he has to repent, do spiritual stock taking, confess, Acknowledge his sins, experience regret, and purify himself. And in order to partake of the communal acquittal, he must be bound to the community. The stronger his bond, the greater the degree of acquittal he will enjoy through the intermediation of the community. How does one bind oneself to Knesset Israel to the point of being purified before God? 
which includes the community composed of the whole of Knesset Yisrael throughout the generations. What mindset is required to join the community? What mindset is required to put away your own particular grievances as justified be and repair this ruptured relationship in order to take one's place as a member of the united Knesset Yisrael? The answer, the Rav says, lies in the writings of the Rambam about Mashiach. About Mashiach. Jews, one of the most Jewish things we do, as we know, is we wait to believe. Right? There's an old joke about a uh, person who's visiting a zoo, a cage, in which a lion is lying down. And the person is amazed. fulfillment of biblical prophecy this, uh, the uh, eschatological end time is a incredible this, this incredible miracle the zookeeper says very easy every day we put in a always and always eager to hear the sound of the chauffeur will announce our final gula. we believe that Mashiach is on its way even though he may delay, even though he may delay, I wait every day hoping that the Mashiach is coming. Now, this statement of Jewish belief is itself taken from the Rambam's Yud Gimel Ikram, one of the 13 dogmas which all traditional Jews must accept. Nevertheless, the Rambam himself in the laws of Tshuva, Paskin, people will not be unless they deserve it. This belief in the Messiah into question. The Rav writes as follows, source 12. If one accepts Maimonides opinion, who says that the coming of the Messiah is dependent upon repentance, and that if it does not take place, then there will be no repentance, how is it possible to declare I believe with complete faith in the advent of the Messiah and though he may tarry indefinitely if Israel, if Israel does not repent. What sense is there in awaiting his coming daily? If Israel does not repent, I'm sorry for the punctuation, what sense is there in awaiting his coming daily? If, if, if Mashiach's coming depends on us, how can we declare that we know and we believe that Mashiach will one day come? What if Kal Yisrael never becomes worthy of the Gula? Never earns the redemption? The Rav's answer is absolutely astonishing. He says as follows, If the coming of the Messiah depends on the worthiness of the community of Israel, then the belief and the assurance that the Messiah will one day come is ipso facto faith in the Jewish community itself that we will one day become worthy of redemption. Faith in the Mashiach, in other words, is faith in ourselves, in our ability to become worthy. The Rav writes, it emerges, this italics, from this, that faith in the coming of the Messiah is to depend upon our faith in Knesset Israel. This implies that however far the Jewish people may be astray and become alienated from Judaism and fall prey to assimilation, in the end it will be restored. And this is one of my favorite sentences the Rav ever said. The concluding and most difficult credo, I believe in the coming of the Messiah, is thus based upon faith in Knesset Israel. So writes the Rav. If it was hard for him, it's even harder for us. This is the faith that's required in order to become part of the Jewish community, 
and to heal the fractures and fissures in the Jewish community. A Jew, the Rav concludes, who has lost his faith in Knesset Yisrael, even though he may personally sanctify and purify himself by being strict in his observance of the precepts and by assuming prohibitions upon himself, such a Jew is incorrigible and is totally unfit to join in the Day of Atonement, which encompasses the whole of Knesset Yisrael in all of its components and all its generations. Only the Jew who believes in Knesset Yisrael may partake of the sanctity of the day and acquittal granted to him as part of the community of Kal Yisrael. So this, unique, this law unique to Yom Kippur, that we have to ask Mechila whether or not it's we who should be asking for Mechila, and that we have to repair the relationship whether it's we who have to be doing that repair, is based on a belief that no matter how much we have been wronged, others, because they too are members of Kal Yisrael, can once again prove worthy of these friendships, that these relationships can be repaired, that we can achieve unity, and that we can come before God as part, as one united community. Faith in the ultimate Geula and faith in the ability of Klal Yisrael, the seaboard, to do tshuva is faith in ourselves as a people. That is what Yom Kippur calls upon us to do. It is not, as the Rav said, an easy thing. Something which has made the Jewish people unique throughout the centuries. There's that story, which I'll close, of the man who was hired by his shtetl to sit outside his shtetl in order to notify his town when the Mashiach was coming around the bend. And, why asked, and when asked why he took this job, the man replied, well, the pay's not so good, but it's good steady work. <laughs> the belief in the Messiah has, has set Klal Yisrael aside for generations. But what we often miss is that perhaps most unique about Klal Yisrael throughout the generations is our ability every Yom Kippur to have faith in ourselves. That this has been our steady work. Faith in our ability to make ourselves worthy to stand before God as, our, as a community. Faith in our ability to heal the fissures that divide us and to remove the chatzitos that prevent the tevila before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Faith in our ability to reconcile ourselves to God by reconciling very much. Thank you all for coming for honoring our right. Thank so you for coming. Pleasure. The, 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 the,